Hello and welcome to Conversations with Q, hosted by myself, Lucia Fontana Powell. How many times have you finished, or not finished, reading a blog post and felt like you've heard it all before? We get it, the more content there is out there, the harder it is to bring something new to the conversation. And at Q, that's what we think is most important, the conversation. So that's why we launched this podcast, so that we can sit down and have a proper chat with leading marketers and entrepreneurs to learn about them and from them. In this episode, I had the privilege of talking to Asia Martos, the CEO and founder of Demand Maven, which works with SaaS companies to build or optimize their acquisition programs, helping them get their first 100 customers or grow to the next stage. I first got to know Asia through a Slack group for SaaS marketers, and she's also a regular at Q's Twitter chats. In any conversation I've seen Asia taking part in online, she brings both expert knowledge and an infectious sense of fun, so I was really excited to talk to her in almost real life. So hi Asia, it's really good to have you here. Hello. I've just got a quick question to help our listeners get to know you. So where are you based and what's your favorite thing about where you live? I am based in Atlanta, Georgia. uh, And I think my favorite thing about where I live is, I think think the community here from a software and a startup perspective is, it's a bustling one and it's bursting. I feel like sometimes even at the seams and we have, so many very just amazing people, companies. Um, and I think, I think honestly, I feel like I'm in a pretty good spot. Asia's recently started her own SaaS consultancy, Demand Maven. So I was really interested to hear what she was doing before this and how she got to where she is today. Um, so what I was doing before Demand Maven was I was a head of marketing at a local data integration uh, startup. And I, um, I worked with a team of people like spread a- across the entire nation uh, and also the world. <laughs> very, very diverse company um, in terms of where everyone was from. We worked with um, the French, there's some Germans. Uh, so lots of different cultures, which I loved. Yeah, um, and also very interesting kind of spot as well. So primarily focusing on data integration, the marketing sales and customer success uh, strategies that you employ for really technical people. Um, it's, it looked a lot different than anything I had ever really done in the past. And the learning curve was both huge, amazing, and um, just totally amazing, like in every single way. Um, also very, very challenging. And, um, and before that, I was uh, demand gen at um, a ABM company. And even before that, I ran marketing for an IT, IT consulting firm. So I've, I've been in software pretty much um, my entire marketing career. Um, and the, one of the biggest reasons why I started Demand Maven was just because I I'd always wanted to grow and foster something on my own. Um, pretty much since I got into the technology space, I've always been very passionate about entrepreneurship and ownership in general. And I like the more, the more that I worked in startups, the more that I realized that I love helping people grow businesses and I would love to one day grow my own. And Mm -hmm. the timing just turned out to be kind of perfect. And 
I went headfirst into starting Demand Maven. Well, yeah, so you kind of caught the bug, I guess, working for other startups. Oh, yes. <laughs> I find that as um, I've, I've run marketing departments times over before, and uh, every single time I pretty much reported to the founder or one of the co-founders. And you, in a way, it's, you kind of, you're kind of like a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> and at the same exact time, you're also responsible for being a revenue driver and being part of growth. Um, so you also kind of get very hands-on in the sale from a sales perspective. And, and I realized that really being holistic was something I was really passionate about. And I think that's why it was perfect to kind of start my own thing. Sure. Yeah. I love the fact that you just use the term therapist. That's actually such a good way of thinking about it. So, yeah. So could you tell us about what Demand Maven does? Demand Maven is a a marketing consultancy that helps early stage startups and technical founders get to their first 100 customers or their first 100K in MRR. And the reason why uh, I decided to focus the company on that very specific niche is because uh, there's there's this theory, um, especially in hiring and overall business growth, that you hire the right people to take you to the next stage in the business. And some people are amazing at early stage. Some people are amazing at late stage. Some people are great from getting you from uh, 100K MRR to a million MRR. Um, I have always been extremely passionate about the early days mm-hmm. and more specifically, laying down the, f- the foundation, the fundamentals, the strategic side as well, um, and, and really getting the very first true acquisition model up and running and going. Um, so that said, I, my specialties have always been in demand gen and acquisition, mm-hmm. um, but that also comes with very much the strategic insights that you need to kind of get going. And a lot of founders don't really know where to start. They're bombarded by content, ideas. um, And if they don't have a marketing background, all of that is extremely confusing um, and very misleading, especially without the context. So that is ultimately what I help founders navigate and implement for them. Great. Well, that's definitely probably the most exciting time to work for a startup really is in those really initial stages. Yes. And also very taxing, (laughs) depending on how you go about it. So, and, and that's ultimately what I'm passionate about. I, I want to, I ultimately want to help founders make that much less taxing. So that way they don't have to take such big heartbreak risks. So early on, they can have kind of like a Sherpa, if you will, who can kind of guide them through that process. So it's just you at the moment, or do you have anyone else you're working with on your team? It is just me. Uh, and I, I am not going to lie. I kind of hope it stays that way, potentially with like maybe contractors and freelancers, but I definitely don't want to become an agency. Cause that, I think that would make, that actually might make it harder for me to work with early stage companies. Um, because then of course, like the deal sizes get bigger. And at that point it might actually box me out of working with, with startups that are at that stage. Um, so to keep it affordable, uh, but still obviously, um, being profitable, I think 
yeah, I think it might actually just be me for yeah, a while. I would think that's a great way to work, really. And it means that you can really get stuck into all of those projects projects because agency work is completely different. Kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so you've got like lots of strings to your bow, kind of from optimizing landing pages. And I know you're really great at writing blog posts because I always read your blog posts. Um, so what does a day <laughs> in the life look like for you? Are you always doing different things or...? Yeah. Um, a day in the life. Oh my gosh. Okay. Because I do focus on, uh, I I do focus on for the most part, the acquisition side of the funnel. Mm -hmm. And with demand gen, you're really looking at the pieces that you need to build, implement that make the most sense, obviously, um, because you can't do it all. Uh, even as an early stage startup, you can't do it all. Um, and really it's kind of carving the path that makes the most sense for every single client. And so what my day looks like every single day is honestly really predetermined um, by like the beginning of the week. And so at the beginning of the week, um, and, and this is kind of like very loose scrum agile, if you will, um, but it's what are the biggest rocks for every single client and what are some of the smaller things and smaller tasks that fall out of it. And every single day is really kind of pre-scheduling all of that. And one day I could be working on three different client projects and the specific tasks that are involved with that. Or I could be working on one specific big thing that's blocked out for the entire day. And this could look like writing a blog post or some big long form content or building out a strategy document that completely outlines how to launch on Product Hunt, for example, or how to write tweets, um, which is something I actually just literally uh, delivered this week <laughs> to a client because they were feeling anxious about social, um, just in general, and especially Twitter. And uh, I wrote a guide about how to how they can do that. And I'm currently working with um, some of their more junior marketers on their team to kind of coach them through not only um, tactical excellence, but pulling everything together from a strategic perspective. Mm-hmm. So for, for the day, um, I mean, my, my schedule, it usually is pre-blocked, if you will, or time-boxed um, that I actually do at the beginning of the week. But the mornings and the afternoons are pretty much always the same. And it's I go through my morning routine, um, which I do – I actually meditate every single morning yeah, well and I look at <laughs> I'm rubbish at med- yeah. I really want to go into meditation but I just I'm so bad at it but I'll get there hopefully <laughs> meditation is a game changer yeah. I I've actually Sorry. considered creating content around that alone um, because I think it is so important for whether you're in-house marketing no matter who you are if you have goals in life meditation is such a game changer and I and I actually think a lot of people do it um, not incorrectly because that's not true. But I think that their frustrations, the reason why they stop can actually be um, counteracted. But anyway, uh, so I, I do actually start with meditation. And then of course, like I review the calendar for the day. I do some very simple business checks. I'm constantly checking the health of my business because cash flow and runway are important to every founder, especially if you're a startup and also especially if you're a freelancer or a consultant like myself. So constantly checking my runway and uh, what I need to fill my pipeline with based off of what deals um, end or start or begin. Uh, And 
after that, it's the, I always double check to see if, um, did I, did I plot my calendar correctly? And so before 9am every single day, I've, I've done all these things. I'll read a few articles, check social, of course, and then I'll double check myself on if what I've prioritized for the day actually makes sense. And then I am heads down into it. It could be, it could be writing articles. It could be um, analyzing uh, something on the website. It could be pulling together a report that I've um, committed to for the week or what have you. So it really looks different across different clients because they do have different needs and different things are priority. So um, that said, there are several things that are very repeatable in my business, but um, for the most part, every single day, I could be into many different things, <laughs> which is both exciting and also like, oh my God, Asia, how do you do this? Yeah, it must be <laughs> I mean, I personally find that I really love having kind of different projects to work on because I don't know, just having something fresh all the time. Let's say you're working on several different clients at once you know, they say a change is as good as a break. And I think it can be really healthy for your productivity levels and focus. Yeah, I I definitely, it's, it's funny. I, I haven't felt overwhelmed in the sense of like this, the, the quantity, I guess, of what I'm doing or, or anything related to that. It's really much more about um, how do I scale myself? Yeah. Because I would love to do more actually. And which yeah. is like, which might sound totally crazy. Um <laughs> Uh, but I, I feel like as far, like since I've been in the business, which has been about five months now, I've really figured out a system that really, really works. Um, and now it's really much more just about execution focus Mm -hmm. and, uh, and delivering and delivering quality. And, and so far I haven't run into any trouble. I think the biggest thing is I just can't take on more clients. Um, so that means that, uh, I figure out how to expand myself, which I'm very interested in. So this would be like working with other freelancers or contractors. Um, some of the gaps that like, maybe I don't need to necessarily be doing myself. Yeah. So, which is a very exciting yeah, no, thing. That'll be interesting to figure out. And um, it's interesting. You've just touched on this talking about, you kind of have a hunger for more work. And I, I don't know if you've read this book, but um, I keep going on about it at the moment. I feel like everyone's probably sick of me talking about it. But, um, it's called The Multi-Hyphen <laughs> Method by Emma Gannon. Um, it's a really good book, actually. And she's just kind of talking about the world of work now and how that's changing. And more people are having, you know, that multi-hyphenate careers where they do lots of different things, have multiple careers in their lifetime, and work remotely and flexibly. Um, and in one of the chapters, she talks about the phrase work-life balance and how this can look different for different people. Um, you sort of have to mm. establish a healthy routine, um, depending on what energizes you and motivates you individually. So it sounds like for you, you know, you really enjoy your work and that does kind of energize you. So I'd love to know your opinion on the phrase work-life balance and do you have to ever find yourself having to set boundaries to prevent burnout? Oh man, I, I 100% believe in work-life balance and, and what it has looked like for me over the years has definitely changed, especially if you work in many different startups or have worked in many different startups. Um, and, and I think primarily because startups do require 
it's interesting. It, it requires both consistent excellence and focus. And at the same exact time, pure chaos, (laughs) which is very unpredictable. Um, but I, uh, I've, I've learned over the years that for me, work-life balance really means making sure that I'm taking care of myself emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And not to get too woo-woo on you or anything, but... I don't um, mind. I love that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I've definitely started to realize, even, even more so now than I would say ever, because when, when you work for yourself, it, things do change. It's natural to want to put more into it because you know deep down that if you were just to put in more hours, you could probably see results a lot faster but at the same time, it's at the cost of burnout. It's also at the cost of potentially almost psyching yourself out of your own success. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely something I've, I've come across um, in the early days. And, and there were definitely dark days of Demand Maven where I wasn't sure if I was cut out for this. Um, but by really taking a minute to kind of sit into my, like, why am I doing this in the first place? And at the same exact time, really taking care of myself emotionally, mentally, all of that. Um, it, it kind of made me realize like, Oh, like these, these are my strengths in business. These are my weaknesses Mm -hmm. in business. And this is where my, this is where I actually place my self worth. And it's not in a number that someone, um, says yes or no to, you you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's much deeper than that. And so, um, that is kind of where I really dealt with the most work-life balance. And from a more concrete perspective, I do definitely struggle with um, really turning off. Yeah, I do as well, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 if I'm not working on something, I'm thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> but that's actually where meditation has really come into play because it's helped me become much more aware of my thoughts and it's also given me a certain sense of, of release where I don't feel guilty about putting down the computer mm-hmm. and walking away and instead exploring some of the more fun childlike things in life. Like um, I'm, I have this vision of myself t- like riding a bike to work and mm-hmm. Atlanta is becoming a much more bikeable city. It's definitely not Paris or London or New York, um, but it, I have this vision in my head that like I'm, I can do this. And so I've started like investing time into like teaching myself how to be a commuter on a bike. And this is where I get to play. Um, this helps totally. Like I, I, I let myself kind of get into these like um, almost like play childlike experiences that help also balance out the hard, important, studious, like adult work. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, no, <laughs> so that's a good balance to have. So do you work um, somewhere else then? Do you work in a co-working space if you've got a commute? I actually don't, um, but it's it's something that I'm working towards. I would love to have an office or a desk at a co-working space. Right now, I actually work from home, which is very different for me. I have spent years commuting to an office, um, never too, too far away, but I I definitely see the value in having a space dedicated to work. Uh, one of the biggest challenges with running an online business from home is that if you don't have a dedicated workspace or if your workspace is pretty public, like I'm working in my living room right now. Cause that's where my desk is. Me too. <laughs> um, 
you, <laughs> yeah, you, uh, it, it's so hard to turn off. And if you have a family or a spouse or a partner, um, roommates, uh, and if, and if you're not able to physically signal to people like, Hey, like I'm done working, mm-hmm. then you yourself don't ever really turn off. And then also others don't really know that they, they, they don't pick up, they, like they don't know if you're looking at Facebook and slacking off or, or if you're working super duper hard and need to focus. So, um, relationships actually play a ton into working from home if you live with someone. Um, and if you're by yourself, then it's like, how do you enforce yourself to stop? So now this is actually something that, um, uh, I have a fiance whom I live with and it's funny, like we talk about this all the time and it's not a big stressor, but it's something that I'm aware of where I, I, I notice like, man, it's really easy for me to work until 10 yeah. PM. Uh, and so making sure that I lay boundaries for myself, um, is crucial. And part of that is, I think, just working from home. Um, granted I'm getting a lot better at it, which is, which I'm very proud of myself about, but at the same time, it, it's hard. It's really tough. Yeah, no, it, it can be <laughs> tricky. And I think obviously more of us are doing it nowadays and well, at Q we're a completely remote team. Um, but I think you do have to find out what works well for you because I've realized I need to go out, you know, at least half of the day and be in a cafe or a co-working space or something because I like seeing other people. But and it does help as well. If you, I mean, I live with my good friend from university. And so it's kind of like, yeah, if she comes mm. home from work, then that's a good signal to, for me to stop. You know, although we're quite good at Q, you know, I have people monitoring me, I guess. So we're all quite good at like only working our set hours and not overdoing it. One of the things that I've always admired about Asia is that she has a really strong personal brand, which comes across as very natural and authentic. I wanted to find out whether this was something she'd consciously cultivated or whether it had evolved naturally. Does she approach her personal brand with the same strategic approach she would that of a client? I am so deeply honored and grateful that you think I have a good personal brand. <laughs> um, I, I approach personal brand and the branding of a company almost the exact same. I do think that there are, there are slightly different expectations when it is on behalf of a brand, but in terms of any brand, really, um, something that I have been taught over and over from all of, from many of my mentors has been that brand is really what drives demand. So when I embarked on this journey, one of the biggest investments, um, so I, I would say the most strategic that I've been about my personal brand, and especially for Demand Maven, was that it was intentional and I didn't want it to be something that was put on the back burner and not, um, not really given any, any attention or love or thought. Now from a strategic perspective um, and making those decisions, it really wasn't any, like I, like I didn't sit down and like create like a presentation or like a document that was like, okay, it's this. And I, I probably could have documented it. It's a bit weird though, um, kind of when it comes to your personal brand. I th- we had a, a Twitter chat on this the other day and I think a few people said you can, you can create brand guidelines for your personal brand, but I think most of us would feel a bit uncomfortable doing that. 
<laughs> it's, yeah and and it is kind of like well, Asia's only gonna say yeah. this and it's like almost like you're like omniscient almost like you're like a yeah. third person and not the person I, for myself I will say um it does come off much more naturally and if if you're a content creator or if if you are someone who has taught anyone anything in your entire life and like it could be as simple as like teaching someone how to ride a bike. There is a style that you have. There is a voice that you have. And there is a, there's a certain persona that you embody whenever you are giving or providing value to someone else on virtually anything. And I've realized over the years that um, whenever I create content, uh, whenever I'm tweeting or writing or talking to other people, there is a very distinct voice that I have. And there's also a very distinct way that I want to make people feel the way I envision people experiencing my brand and my personal brand is that, um, it's, it is very fun. It's got a little bit of attitude, a little bit of Mm -hmm. sass, but when you walk away from experiencing that, you're going to walk away with things to go act on in your hands. Like that is my number one goal with whatever I do. Um, so that said, Personal brand, it's it, it definitely is a very natural thing, but I always myself constantly with anything I create on behalf of Demand Maven. Does this does this follow kind of like the rules that I've set myself? And really, they're just my values. Like, what do I value? Um, and am I is my best self coming through on this? Sure. When I do this for clients, and and I am not a branding expert. Let me just start by saying I am great at taking someone else's brand that they've already kind of said, like, this is the voice. And I'm, um, I'm best at applying that to the things that I create Mm -hmm. for them, whether strategically or um, more like tactically. Uh, But that said, a lot of early stage startups come to me and a lot of them haven't figured out what that is yet. And that's perfectly fine. Instead, what I end up doing is um, based off of who the founders are and based off of uh, the way that they operate, I, I nine times out of 10, I'm really helping them find their voice because I also find that that helps them understand what, what their company's voice is too. Um, and this probably isn't that surprising, but I actually find that a lot of founders um, that I work with, they don't really have audiences. Like they don't really have personal yeah. brands. Um, so in a way, I'm kind of like teaching them how to do that for themselves first, and then they can usually apply that to what it looks like for their ultimate product. Yeah, well, it can be really crucial having a strong personal brand, you know, for your company. Would you say you've got um, clients just come to you naturally through establishing a personal brand? One hundred percent. And I and I think part of this is because of um, the consultant client relationship where whenever you have clients, they're really buying you. And, and that is, I think, one of the lessons that I learned earliest. Um, even when I was, uh, I was at a company called Arc Systems, where I managed marketing there for about four and a half years, that was a, it was an IT consulting firm at the time. They're much more full service now, more like an agency. But at, uh, back then, I mean, I was consulting big, giant enterprise brands. Um, and that was, kind of like my early consulting training, Mm -hmm. except something that my boss at the time told me that has stuck with me to this day is that he's like, Asia, you keep thinking that people are buying the services, but they're really not. They're really buying me, you and everyone else here in this company. And I was like, 
oh my gosh, you're so right. And I've always kept that in mind my entire career. Um, and so even so now, clients really, yes, they're, they're buying the value, of course. Like I'm not saying that they're not, but the second thing that they're buying is really you. So if, if you invest in your personal brand, and this is true for in-house too. I mean, um, if you're applying for jobs, um, you know, it's part of like your career, like they're really buying you. So it's like just making sure that your personality is, is the thing that people do recognize and see and that you're able to really put your, like your self-worth first. I think that that's so important. Well, I guess for all of us, there's always going to be several other people if not hundreds or thousands offering the same skills and the same services so yeah that is when it comes down to it it's you that makes you stand out yes uh oh my gosh like and 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 surprisingly enough so many people I think are afraid of doing that and and I and I mean I'm, I'm constantly taking calls with fellow consultants and freelancers and a lot of them are like like, man, like you came out of left field. And, <laughs> and I agree with them. I kind of did. Uh, but at the same time, I, I say, well, I, I really invested in brand because that is something that I, I one, firmly believe in. But I know that that's what people really start with. It's, it's kind of what they, um, when a client is looking like who to hire, they're really looking for who stands out. And that is, it's something that I tell all of my other like consulting friends to uh, if, if they haven't already to really think about it. Yeah, no, crucial. I was reading one of your blog posts the other day and you were talking about how startups must focus on building an excellent product before anything else. You know, if you don't have that bit right, then there's not really much point investing in other marketing. So I'd love to know which software products you most admire, both as a SaaS professional and as a consumer, really. Yeah. Okay. So I, there are, there are two products that come to mind immediately and actually there's three. <laughs> the first is uh bear metrics and bear metrics is a product that I've, I've been introduced to since I started my consulting career. But then also as I've been helping other, I've been helping my clients start like implementing the platforms that they need to actually successfully report on what does growth actually look like and Surprisingly enough, a lot of founders don't have this very simple tools. Mm-hmm. And we've used, uh, I've used historically tools before that accomplish exactly what Bear Metrics is doing. But what I love about Bear Metrics is the experience. And I love their focus on uh, companies with free trials that do kind of live and die by how many people churn out of it. Mm-hmm. And I loved the way that that product is positioned. And I also really love the technical aspect of it too, because they, Bear Metrics really focuses on companies that have the right kind of Stripe API implementation. And based off of the way that your product might be set up, you might actually have that perfect setup. Um, and, but what I love the most about it is honestly the accuracy. And that's very, very hard to achieve with, some tools, not all, but some tools, it's very hard to achieve just based off of the way that your product fires and like does everything that it does. Um, as a marketer using bare metrics, I am obsessed. <laughs> the reporting is as simple as it can be. And at the same exact time, you can get complex. Um, the experience is beautiful. And on top of that, I really love bare metrics. Um, I love their marketing. They actually yeah. have 
an amazing inbound play. So that's the first. The second, I would say, is a tool that I was introduced two years ago. I never gave it a shot, and I decided to finally try it because um, I was I was considering a few different email marketing automation tools. They more recently were ConvertKit, and then now I think that they're gosh, I'm not I'm going to totally blank on their new name. They're not ConvertKit anymore. They're Sivas, I think, or something like that. Um, but ConvertKit really blew me away. They they completely just blew away like all of my expectations purely by focusing on the fact that like they are focused on freelancers and consultants and people who run blogs who need to be able to quickly add in calls to action. They need to be able to quickly tag people based off of the form that they convert on and also send emails that are targeted and specified and create automations. Those are very common features, but the way that ConvertKit thinks about them is purely based on the way that consultants, bloggers, freelancers use them. And that to me is the perfect marriage between how someone uses something and the product that they build. It's different than something like Drip, which is also a very powerful email marketing automation tool, but I wouldn't recommend that for consultants because of the way that their feature sets have been built and the way that you implement some of those things and ultimately the job to be done, um, which is an amazing framework. Highly recommend mm-hmm. that to everyone. But, but the difference between the two platforms, not only price-wise, but also implementation, like it, it was just, it was so perfect. And I, I was blown away that someone would make a tool for people exactly like me and for my exact use cases. That is to me, just like product marriage, like, oh, it was awesome. Um, and then the last one is a tool I haven't actually gotten to use yet, but from what I can see, it's it's pretty, it's pretty stunning for one, but it's Podia. And they are also a tool very much for consultants, freelancers, but then also startups. So if you want to create courses, um, but you don't want to use uh, platforms that maybe, I don't know, I, I guess are much more complex than they need to be. Um, Podia offers a pretty, a pretty simple baseline and you don't have to be like a super complex sophisticated marketer to use it you you can you can be a freelancer or a contractor who's new um and but they want to offer courses or ebooks or what have you mm-hmm. um but they don't want to use like a gumroad or um oh gosh i can't remember the other platform Podi offers a pretty stunning example uh and from what i can see it looks like it's pretty user-friendly i don't know yet but i definitely recommend checking it out well i'll have to have a look at that one okay so let's say you're working with a startup and they've nailed their product what would be the next steps in achieving early stage growth? Okay, so there's, there's really two main ways to think about growth from a marketing perspective, at least, for early stage startups. The first is you either need more free trials or you need more demos. And the way that you get to both of these or either or and Surprisingly enough, like a lot of startups start out with both, um, which I think can actually hurt if you're not focused. Um, And at the same time, depending on your business model, it it could make sense. But either or with if you want more demos, there's a really good chance that if you have a demo, you're selling a product that uh, someone can't buy immediately. They actually have to either get some kind of um, or or approval, if you will. So 
demo, it's, it's typically, okay, you need to do a lot more outreach and much more sales, um, which is kind of like the easy answer. If you want to grow, sell more. Um, but especially with demos, you're probably looking at a lot more sales enablement. Probably. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a hard line, but it's, it's something to think about. With a free trial, there's a really good chance that you're probably not going to spend a ton of time trying to sell one-to-one just purely because of time and scale. There's a really good chance that you're going to focus much more on uh, building up brand, building up demand in a much more organic and maybe even paid way. So more free trials can equal growth and more demos can equal growth. From there, the equations get much more complex. But if you think about it for startups, there's really a handful of ways that you can accomplish growth, no matter which bucket you're in. You either need more traffic to your website. Well, how do you get more traffic? You create more content, you create buzz, community might be a play that you leverage, or you pay for it. That's ultimately what gets people to your website, which gets people to sign up. Sounds very, very simple, but figuring out what is the right mix of things you do is kind of where it gets hairy. Now, typically, whenever we talk about this, whenever I talk about this with founders, um, this simplifying it in this way does typically blow their minds because they've always heard, well, you just got to go buy Facebook ads (laughs) or you just need to tweet more. Um, But nine times out of 10, those tactics without some overarching strategy or plan usually fizzle out pretty quickly. And it's because they haven't done the easiest thing and also the least sexy thing, which is user research. And whenever I say user research, typically uh, the response is, well, we talk to our customers all the time or, um, you know, we well." there's no real reason to talk to them. Like we already know where they hang out. And, and then we get, I don't know, three, four people on the phone. And we actually talk about like, where do you hang out? What kind of content do you read? What do you like to like, what social media um, things like, do you like to interact with? And then the answers always blow their minds. And they're just like, wow, we had no idea. (laughs) And it's just because like user research is, is the first step always to really understanding how do you use strategically get more traffic to your site? because um, you could focus on many different things. I really liked hearing what Asia had to say about user research. As she said, it's not seen as a sexy growth hack. So once a startup has got that foundation in place, what can they do to leverage social media and content marketing? I was interested to learn whether Asia found any strategies or channels more effective than others. I do think it ultimately depends on the target markets that each startup is really going after. What I find is what most startups probably do end up struggling with is that they lack the focus and a lot of them are a little bit afraid to niche and to focus. Part of this is because they just don't have the data. Well, I can help get them the data. That's actually very easy. Um, But the second part is really deciding and what I find is a lot of startups, when they first come out the gate, they want to be everything to everyone. Yeah. That does make sense, and, and which might sound crazy. But for, for some companies, yes, you might end up having to do that. But for most, from my experience at least, it is pretty specific, 
And that means that your customer is specific. Your customer is not anyone. It's, it, they look and breathe and feel like a very specific person. And until you talk to them, it's impossible to recognize the patterns. Um, and, and that to me is, is kind of where it does really depend. And that's, that's the, that's the, the, the uh, cop-out answer, <laughs> but I know two people look alike yeah. and I think it's important to recognize that. Now that said, there are dozens of patterns in terms of where they hang out. Everyone and their mom is on Facebook. That's obvious. But whether or not they engage with certain types of content from brands like yours, mm-hmm. like that is the ultimate question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, globally, if there's one thing I would say I've never seen work, no matter what, <laughs> is buying lists. Don't yeah. buy a list. Okay. I just think it's just the worst yeah. thing. And I just don't know anyone who has had success from it. I, um, un- unless you're an SDR and you're totally cool hammering out, you know, a thousand emails from a list that you bought, mm-hmm. but I find that nine times out of 10, if you're, if you're going to buy a list, you might as well spend the time to actually build yeah. one that you know is accurate and is targeted and is focused and is exactly what you want. For sure. So let's say a company is testing lots of different things. How do you know when a particular strategy or channel is working? Like at what point should you just move on and try something else? Hmm. This is one of my favorite questions because it is all about attribution and investing in the right kind of analytics, which is kind of a catch 22 because especially if you're early stage, the chances of you being able to invest in a really awesome, amazing attribution platform is very, very low. And to be honest, I, I haven't seen anyone do this really, really well. So instead what we do do is we try to use the best that we can and the best tools that we possibly can. And I like to use a combination of heap and Google analytics. And I am not an analytics guru by any stretch of the imagination, but from a reporting on goals, tracking conversion tracking and those sources and whether or not those sources became revenue, which is where, uh, bare metrics can kind of be like your source of truth on whether or not they became revenue. Um, that is ultimately what we start to look for. And in the early days, it is really, really tough to be able to say like, yep, like we ran that Facebook campaign and like it, it, you know, returned this much revenue, but just because most, most SaaS companies have kind of like a 30 day cycle before people are actually ready to buy. So that said it, it, it can be very tough. And in ideal situations you're really only running maybe one truly paid thing at a time um and from like an outbound perspective well you can absolutely tell who becomes paying revenue from that uh it it's it's definitely a mix but it's this is where investing in the right attribution models is crucial and it it is key it is tough in the early stages though because you probably aren't going to be able to buy like a visible or anything like that so it's, it's definitely tough. And there's also like the ultimate mystery of if we invest in content marketing, did it give us the return that we want? Um, and that's, and that's something that usually doesn't really happen until months later. Yeah, exactly. It can be so tricky to measure that. And, you know, especially with that inbound marketing vanity metrics on always everything. And I don't know, sometimes just engaging with one person can be so much more valuable than 
having hundreds of followers or thousands of likes on something. Yeah, exactly. Something that, um, and something that Drift says, David Cancel actually says this is he says, not everything is going to be measurable and some marketers are just going to have to be okay with that and make peace with that. And I've definitely, uh, (laughs) I've definitely had to make peace with it in some ways and in others it's, it's acquisition is pretty clear. Um, and when you have the right tracking models set up, it's very obvious where it's coming from. Um, but that said, I think, Cohort analysis uh, or analyses, if that's the proper way to say it, those are absolutely actually my favorites because you might run a given campaign and maybe in a month they don't buy, but four months later they might they might actually purchase. That is something that's a very interesting thing to actually break apart. And um, I don't think Bear Metrics has a cohort, but um, some platforms do offer that. That is what I find to be one of the most amazing ROI providers for campaigns mm. that you run. Sure, I guess it goes back to building those long-term relationships and you're not necessarily going to get instant success with everything that you try. Yeah, exactly. And and as long as you do the best research that you possibly can and as long as you put the right people in place to help you execute on your strategic vision. So people like me, people like um, uh, like other experienced marketers or content creators, what have you, whatever that strategy looks like, as long as you have that, you're, you're ultimately going to see growth. And I think that's one of just like the hardest things to kind of know and trust. Um, it's never going to be tomorrow, uh, but it will absolutely be over the time of the engagement, which is, which is something that I tell founders pretty much every single day. It's always hard to imagine, but uh, uh, showing them the month-over-month growth is, is really what convinces them. After my conversation with Asia, I really felt like I'd had a masterclass in early-stage startup growth, packed full of tried-and-tested advice to achieve sustainable, long-term growth, rather than just quick fixes. I'd 100% recommend following Asia's work, as you're bound to learn even more from her. Please hit me up on Twitter. Um, I am at Asia Matos and I am very active. <laughs> uh, and then apart from that, demandmaven.io is my website. So you can always uh, intercom message me there. And there is a newsletter oh, that uh, if you're into website teardowns, I do offer um, like a website teardown every month. And I'm actually trying to increase the amount that I produce because people love them. And also just that's how you'll keep up with my posts and overall updates. So I highly recommend signing up there. I would definitely be subscribing to that myself. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations with Q with very special guest Asia Martos. We hope you enjoyed it, and if you'd like to have a chat with us about anything we discussed in this episode, feel free to tweet us at at Q underscore co, or call into our Anchor FM station, QCast. We'd also love it if you could give us some stars on iTunes so that more people can find us.